0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal are the co-founders and co-CEOs of Warby Parker, an online glasses retailer that has grown to become a billion-dollar-plus brand in just a few short years. And right out of the gate, thanks to some early press, the pair said that they knew they had a hit on their hands.
2: So when we got those features in Vogue and GQ, it was literally that moment that the business took off. So we literally scrambled, got the website up. Um, We ended up hitting our first year sales uh, targets in three weeks, sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks, had a wait list of over 20,000 people. Um, It was mayhem. Um, And the question is, how do we maintain that momentum?
0: Six years later, the pair have sold millions of glasses throughout the U.S., We spoke with Dave and Neil about how they've grown Warby Parker, their future IPO plans, and a lot more in this episode of Success, How I Did It, a Business Insider podcast about the career paths of some of today's most accomplished people. I'm your host and Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief, Allison Chantel. Today with us, we have Dave Gilboa and Neil Blumenthal, who are co-founders and co-CEOs of Warby Parker, a glasses company that's been valued at, what, more than a billion dollars these days?
1: There are rumors out there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: The unicorn status has been achieved. We can just say that. So um, thank you all for coming in. Lots to talk about. Uh, I want to go back to where you two first met at Wharton, right? Yeah. So tell me about those days. Um, This is where Warby Parker got cooked up, right?
2: Exactly, we were full-time students getting our MBAs in Philadelphia, um, we had become close friends in a way that sort of business school uh, often does, um,
1: and Dave had lost a, a pair of very expensive glasses. How much did you pay for them? It was $700, and I'd been working in consulting and finance and then took a few months off to backpack around the world and uh, was in northern Thailand, happened to leave my glasses on a plane, they were my only pair of glasses. It didn't make sense to me that I was going to have to pay seven hundred dollars for uh, for a new pair of glasses, and so got to campus. Uh, was a full time student didn't um, didn't have glasses my whole first semester. was kind of complaining to anyone that would listen about you know, just kind of wondering why glasses were so expensive. Um,
0: but you didn't have glasses for the whole first semester. How did you see and do any work? What this makes d- no sense. Did a lot of
1: it squinting seems like a and plan. Uh, and and I wore contacts sometimes. And then I uh, started chatting uh, with Neil, who'd spent uh, a bunch of time. Uh, in the eyeglass world, and and then kind of light bulbs went off um, when we when we started learning more about kind of some of his ex- experiences.
0: Interesting. I didn't realize that you had been in the glasses eye seeing world before because I thought so. That was one of my questions: is Dave weren't, didn't you have a bioengineering background, and you had history, Neil? Neil, didn't you? Um,
2: yeah. So I my undergrad I focused on international relations and and history. Yeah, not exactly what you'd expect to start to a tech company glasses. right, right. Or, or a fashion label or what have you. Um, but uh, after school, I thought I wanted to work at the State Department, uh, decided I, I didn't want to go into government, ended up uh, sort of working for this amazing nonprofit social enterprise that would train low-income women to start their own businesses, giving eye exams and selling glasses in their mm-hmm. communities throughout the developing world. So I spent five years sort of proving out this model because I – I don't think most people realize that there's close to a billion people on the planet that don't have access to glasses. Um, And if you think about a tool that improves productivity, right, that enables somebody to learn um, and then enables somebody to work, uh, it's one of the most effective poverty alleviation devices out there.
0: Interesting. So you guys put your heads together. You have this background experience. You're not able to see. (laughs) It's cool. (laughs) Uh, And this idea aha moment happens and there's four of you right there's two other co-founders
1: yeah so um the the other two uh, co-founders in addition to to me and Neil are uh jeff and jeff and andy so um we spent about a year and a half really formulating um this the idea that eventually turned into warpy parker and um i'd been wearing glasses since i was 12 years old i'd never heard of a company called lexotica um but uh, they own brands like Ray-Ban, Oakley, Oliver Peoples, Persol, Arnett, um, dozens of others. They um, have the exclusive eyewear licenses to most major uh, fashion labels like Chanel, Prada, Dolce & Gabbana, Ralph Lauren. Um, Most consumers don't realize that when you walk into a sunglass hut or lens crafter's, you see 50 different brands of glasses, Uh, but all those brands are are owned and and produced by the same company that also owns the store that you're standing in, that also owns the Vision Insurance uh, plan. They're using to pay for those glasses. Um, And so Uh, It just didn't make sense uh, to us that uh, that was kind of the the only way that um, you could uh, design, manufacture, and and sell glasses to consumers. And um, and before e-commerce was available as a distribution channel, um, it was really um, hard to um, create a vertically integrated brand. um, If you design glasses and And explain
0: what vertically integrated means, because it's kind of a buzzword, but you know, Um, putting it all under one roof, right?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, for us that means that we're designing um, the products under our, um, we're doing all the design in house. We're producing them under our own brand and selling them directly to consumers without um, any wholesale uh, or any any kind of middlemen um, along the way. Um, and as a result, we'd be able to cut out all the unnecessary licensing fees, all the unnecessary markups. Um, and offer a a product that normally costs several hundred dollars and offer it for less than a $100 to to consumers.
0: So you all got to work, and you I think the first money you raised was actually from Wharton, right? You won a business competition there. It was $2,500 or something.
2: Yeah, we... uh got a few awards uh, from the school which was super helpful um we also sort of think they must
0: be really really glad they made that investment now they're gonna get a nice return if they haven't already
2: well they were really kind and it was actually a gift so it it wasn't really Oh no! no. Uh, we try to pay them back and I don't know With internships. <laughs> yeah. um, oh man,
0: missed opportunity.
2: But what we did was the the four of us, uh, Jeff, Andy, Dave, and I sort of got together and said, "Hey, um, how do we want to do this?" Uh, and we decided that we all wanted to be sort of equal partners. We each committed to uh, putting in our life savings, which at the time was about $25,000. And if the company really demanded it, we would each put in an additional $5,000. Of course, it did need that. So we started the business with $120,000, and that enabled us uh, on a shoestring um, to uh, design our first collection um, and produce an initial inventory of frames, uh, design a website um, because we needed some place to sell our glasses um and then hire a pr firm to help us get some attention um and when i say do this on a shoestring i mean we used to go to td bank steal pens um and and steal office supplies from other people um but we were able to um get meetings uh with vogue and and gq and and we were building this fashion brand, and that's we want to be in the best men's book, which was GQ, and the best women's fashion book, which is Vogue. Um, and we launched, and the company just took off like a rocket ship. So you
0: got that at launch. That's pretty hard to get Vogue interested, I would think, in anything for a startup that no one's ever heard of.
2: I think we were really fortunate uh, for a couple reasons. One is, is I think, right. Founders uh, and CEOs try and often take credit for being the smartest people in the world, but so much is serendipity and, and timing. Um, and right, we were one of the first of these vertical integrated brands, so the story was really novel. Um, we had this home try-on program, right, where people select five frames, we ship it to you free of cost. That was a completely novel new idea that you know writers could could write about. Um, I think we have. A very specific design aesthetic, and uh, our frames were beautiful. They were made from, and continue to be made from, some of the most premium materials like cellulose acetate that we work with, a one hundred and fifty year old family owned uh, Italian company. Um, so, right, we had all the building blocks uh, there, and of course, we had our social mission. So, you know, layer. So that was um, in
0: place from the beginning. That's that's where you give basically a pair of glasses away for everyone that's sold, right?
2: Exactly. So that
0: was from launch, you've had that.
2: From day one. I mean, Dave and I and Jeff and Andy, you know, it's one of our first conversations is what type of business do we want to build? And we wanted to build a business that was going to have a positive impact in the world where we were going to be excited to come to work every day. Um, And as we were thinking about, you know, what does that actually mean in practice? We thought, well, it's an inherent public good to bring down the price of a pair of glasses from $500 to $95 here in the U.S., but we knew that even at $95 there was lots of people that still needed glasses that didn't have them. So we decided let's commit to distribute a pair of glasses for every pair that we sell because that would actually be impact.
0: So that's expensive, especially for a shoestring budget, like you were saying. But how important do you think to getting traction is a social component like that? It's a strategy that Tom's has famously used. A couple of different brands have famously used it. Yeah,
1: there's no question that um, we'd be more profitable um, if we didn't have uh, kind of a social mission what built into our Profitable?
0: Business. Are you profitable?
1: Um, as, a, as a private company, we don't really talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> We've had periods of profitability. <laughs> but we're uh, in- investing in a lot of growth right now, and um, and yeah, you know, there's there's no question that kind of the bottom line would would look better um, in the near term um, if we didn't have um, these additional expenses. Uh, but we really view it as uh, probably the uh, kind of the best return we could, kind of the best long term return we can get um, on those dollars, um, and understanding that we're having an impact. We've now distributed millions of pairs of glasses to to people in need around the globe and um and so we're seven years in have already had a pretty significant impact
0: so um i just want to go back a little bit to how you all started getting traction in the first place um i'm sure the magazines helped but as we often find you can get a bump of impress, and then you have to maintain that so what did your traction look like when did you actually have a lot of sales rolling in and know that this was going to stick
2: So when we got those features in Vogue and GQ, it was literally that moment that the business took off so uh, we had actually our website wasn't ready to launch and the fashion director at GQ calls us up and is like guys like the magazine's gonna hit newsstands any day now where is the website because we were gonna be in the March issue of GQ uh, and it was February and we thought oh we have a whole month um, and just to show you our naivete it's like no the March issue comes out in February <laughs> so we literally scrambled got the website up um, we ended up hitting our first-year sales Uh, targets in three weeks sold out of our top 15 styles first
0: year targets in three weeks in
2: three weeks sold out of our top 15 styles in four weeks had a wait list of over 20,000 people Um, it was mayhem Um, and the question is how do we maintain that momentum that was all about customer experience. So how do we make every single person have an exceptional experience, even when it's a crappy one? And until to this day, um, you call Warby Parker, and a human being answers the phone within six seconds. Um, we have a net promoter score of uh, since inception of uh, – in the 80s. Um, I think right now it's like 84. Um, And for those that don't know, net promoter score is a measure of customer satisfaction uh, to give you a sense uh, where in the 80s cable companies have negative net promoter scores and most of their optical retailers are in the single digits. So when we make people happy, they're more likely to tell other people about us. And word of mouth has, since inception, has been the number one driver of sales for us.
0: So if you all are this successful right out of the gate, I'm sure Luxotica, when they hear about you, is not very pleased. So what was your first interaction with them like? And I'm assuming that they've tried to either crush or buy you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, their former CEO, um, Kate, flew up from Milan to, to meet with us um, you know, pretty early on in the business. I think kind of a couple of years in. And we, Neil and I, I, went to meet him at their corporate offices, and we kind of told the team, half jokingly, that you know, here's the address we're going to. If if you don't hear from us in two hours, <laughs> send the cops here. Fair. <laughs> um, but you know, I think they're certainly aware of what what we're doing. Um, it's a it's a massive company, and it's a and it's an even bigger industry. Um, and so, even though we're growing quickly and and taking share, um, you know, they. They have kind of their established uh, business that's still doing well. Um, and I think there's kind of plenty of room for um, for more than one player in the space. Mm-hmm.
0: So an interesting thing that you all did when you were setting up your business is you're both here, you're both still co-CEOs. Sometimes people do that for a little bit, sometimes not at all. Usually it's just one. So how does this work? I think I saw you joke on Quora that you flip a coin when you disagree, <laughs> Neil. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, um, well, so there were four of us who started the business together. We were friends first. Um, we got a, a lot of advice from people, um, you know, really smart people that um, told us that, yeah, you know, never start a business with friends. You guys are going to end up hating each other, or maybe suing each other. You know, four founders is way too many, um, especially kind of. You guys have overlapping skill sets. There's not like there's a technical person and a designer and, um, and, you know, we said. Yeah, but um we, we really trust and, and, and value um everyone's contributions here. Um let's just figure out how we can be thoughtful about it. Um and that started you know even kind of thinking about um future repercussions. So um we said Um, okay, we're all going to be equal partners here, but let's set up a vesting schedule um, so that if, you know, there are so many um, opportunities at business school um, or kind of as we get into this, maybe one person decides they want to pursue something else um, and they should get kind of credit for time served. Um, And so we had a structure that kind of got all four of us vesting um, through graduation. Um, And also... Kind of set up some formal structures around feedback. We had 360 reviews, even when there were four of us. We'd go to kind of our favorite bar and
0: how does that uh, work? Yeah, uh, I guess over it, drinks, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> it's a little awkward at first. So <laughs> we'd have kind of one person in the hot seat and kind of talk about you know how they think oh things God. are going, and then the other three people would uh, sort of chime Pylon. in. Pile on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if, if you were going last, that's when you really got it. <laughs>
0: yeah, because <Yeah. laughs> yeah, everyone's been building up. What you've been saying against them for the last <laughs> half hour or whatever.
1: Yeah, and you know, um, you know, a number of us had worked at places like Bain & Company where they have really formalized feedback processes, and so we tried to kind of bring in um, what we thought was effective from some organizations that we'd been a part of and, and build that um, really into the, the foundation of the team when it was just four of us. Um, and then um, so we launched the business in February 2010. Uh, we graduated that May, and at that point um, Jeff and Andy left day-to-day roles uh, they're still all four of us are still on the board um and um neil and i um uh, we're gonna stay on to to run the company and and we had been friends first and then had been operating as kind of four equal partners um and we discussed kind of a bunch of different structures that could make sense does it you know, make sense for one person to be ceo the other chairman of the board one person ceo the other president uh do we even need titles at all um and realized that kind of the most effective way to work together was just continue um, kind of how things had been going and and just think of ourselves as partners. Uh, But we wanted to make sure that it wasn't kind of confusing to uh, the team as we hired people and uh, wanted to avoid a situation where if if mom says no, go ask dad uh, kind of thing. And and so uh, we tried to be really thoughtful and make sure that kind of every department, everyone in the organization only um, has a line of reporting into one of us. and so we, I think we each have six or seven departments that roll up into each of us. Uh, but effectively, it works more like a Venn diagram, where if there's kind of a, a major decision about strat- strategy or brand or e-commerce um, or you know, where we're putting retail stores, uh, we're both involved.
0: Definitely. And it sounds like no investors were scared away by this either. They, I mean, you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. I guess all they really care about is are you selling stuff yeah numbers could, there
2: frankly the proof was in the pudding we didn't raise capital until about a year and a half after launch when we completed our first round um, and we had all this sort of success success i have air quotes up because it was only a year and a half but it was clear that the business model was working that we had a brand that resonated so um, I, I think that one of the things that Investors always look at is the team.
0: What do you think is the most critical thing you all did in that first year to really cement yourselves? Was it that press? Was it going to GQ and Vogue? What was the thing that you think um, made it that you were going to work as a startup?
2: I think this does our success does start with the fact that this was a solution to a very real problem, right? If you ask people, how much did you pay for their glasses? They 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 lower their shoulders. They sort of get a little sad and embarrassed by how much they've spent on eyeglasses. So this was a real consumer issue. The the timing again worked where this was when e-commerce was on the upswing. We um, were one of the first uh, sort of digitally native or vertically integrated brands. Um, And this was also a time where, before Facebook had fully monetized, uh, I don't know if people remember, but there used to be these fan pages, and you would try and get people to like your page. Um, And with our home try-on program in particular, we saw so many customers would get their home try-on, get their five pairs of frames at home, try them on, take pictures of them and then post it to Facebook and say, "Hey, uh, what which frame do I look best in?" So there was this viral nature to our business that we didn't have to pay for early on. So again, there was some luck there from from a timing perspective.
0: And you all at this point have sold over a million pairs, I think, and that was that's stated information, I believe. So what's the what's the latest that you can share?
1: Um yeah, so again, we don't share much about our financials. Um, I think uh, what we announced was that we've distributed um, over two million pairs of, of glasses through our Buy a Pair, Give a Pair program. Um,
0: so, so a million for you and then a million that you give away would be the implied.
1: Oh, n- no, multiple
2: millions that we've sold and multiple millions that we've ah, distributed people in need. Yeah.
0: Great, so uh, congrats, that's a huge accomplishment. And in seven years? really fast. It's been a wild ride. How what have you learned scaling a company to a thousand plus employees, hundreds of millions raised. That can't be easy to do a first time around. So how have you figured it out?
2: One of the things I we decided early on that we're building a brand, um, and for a, a brand is not just a logo, right? It's not just a visual identity. A brand is a point of view and that point of view needs to be lived. And it, and it really comes down to the culture of the company, right? When somebody joins Warby Parker, they get a copy of Kerouac's Dharma Bums, uh, because the name Warby Parker comes from two early Jack Kerouac characters, Warby Pepper and Zag Parker. Um, they get, uh, pretzels from Martin's Handmade, um, Uh, Pretzel Company, which uh, sells pretzels uh, out of the Union Square farmers market because that was within a block of our very first office, and we used to get pretzels from there all the time. Uh, I could go on and on, but we've established a bunch of rituals that we think reflect the values
1: and and the culture of the company we're trying to build. So we realized when we were, I think, 20 or 25 people that we've been hiring a certain type of person um, that kind of reminded us of ourselves on the founding team a bit. Um, but we hadn't really articulated um, the criteria or the values that were most important to us as an organization, and so we went through an exercise um, with the entire company, asked people to write down uh, what are individual values that are important to you, in people that you want to associate with in your life, you know, kind of completely out of outside of a context. And we got, um, over 200 different values and, uh, then led kind of a bunch of discussions about which values were the same, which ones were different, which ones were kind of critically important, which ones were nice to haves. Um, and then Neil and I kind of took those and, uh, and created, um, our core values at, at Warby Parker. And then a couple of years later, we went through kind of a similar exercise now that we were a couple hundred people. And, um, and sort of pressure tested um, the, those values and made sure that they were still relevant.
0: So one other thing that I know you do, Dave, I think that you've talked about is, do you still do this 90 minutes a day just for you? No one can interrupt, no one can have meetings with you. W- what happens in that time? Do you just <laughs> meditate? <laughs> like, um, what, how, how's, how's this good for business?
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, take a, an hour and a half nap. Day, but, um, you know, so Neil and I realized, you know, Uh, a couple years ago that we got to the office and we were just in back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back meetings like often 16 meetings in a row with no breaks um and it didn't really leave us time to think or prepare for the meetings and sometimes we were, you know kind of forced to email while we're in the meetings and just trying to multitask and wasn't wasn't good for anyone um and uh so he met Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn, and he mentioned that he has he schedules 90 minutes of kind of unstructured time in his day. Um, and so, went back and uh, grabbed our assistant and said, Okay, we need to do this. Um, and I'd say it, it worked for a while. Um, more and more, those 90 minutes <laughs> tend to get scheduled over as things pop up. Um, but we still um, try to leave some time in the day where. Uh, we can think and and um, just kind of not get bogged down and kind of the just the, the hamster wheel or uh, there there are always uh, things that we we could be doing always meetings that we can be in um, we try to ask ourselves you know am, am I the only person in the company that uh, needs to be in in this meeting um, if not you know, maybe someone will just send me notes afterwards or um, I'll, you know I'll catch up with someone in, in a one-on-one Um and uh, try to spend kind of more and more time um, thinking about what we want this company to look like in 2020 and and beyond and and, um, focus on kind of bigger uh, strategic initiatives.
0: Got it. So one thing I wanted to ask you about kind of as we wrap up the interview is just a few things that are happening, trends both in the startup world and just in the world in general. Um, One thing that I thought would be fun is you all are the Glasses pros. What do you think of Snap Spectacles? Are they cool? Are they crap? Are they toys? Are they pretty?
2: Uh, We think they did a very good job at Positioning spectacles um, as a toy and and limiting, I think, expectation, um, which was in stark contrast with Google Glass, right? That you know w- was marketed as this is something you're going to wear 100 percent of the time. It's going to radically change the world, um, and that's those are hard expectations to, to live up to.
0: Another one I had for you is Amazon. Amazon keeps touting, you know, we're the number one store for millennials. Everyone's buying everything from us. We're the everything store um why can't they just crush you <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah i think uh it, amazon's a company that we have tremendous uh respect for and and um you yeah, it's pretty incredible what uh what they continue to to achieve as they um extend their their products and, and services um i think where uh they haven't competed yet um uh, effectively is in kind of building branded products and experiences um, and so you know while they certainly have private label um, offerings um, yeah I think in in terms of the kind of a holistic um, authentic brand that resonates with consumers um, that I don't think that's part of their DNA at least not at this time um, I think the other aspect that is a bit more complicated um, about our business is that um, for prescription glasses, uh, we have to custom manufacture the product after you order. Um, and that's historically not something that Amazon has done either. Kind of they, they're really good at delivering uh, products that are prepackaged and, and getting them to you as quickly as possible. Um, but kind of the mass customization supply chain um, is not something that um, I, I think that they've, they've successfully uh, done in the past.
0: Okay. Uh, And then I had a question, too, about, um, let's see. So, okay, you all are, uh, I hate to use the word unicorn because it has gotten a bad connotation, I guess. Um, It's a buzzy word that people use to say uh, when a company has reached a valuation of over a billion dollars. What do you think is going to happen to all these companies that have raised so much money, or to most of them?
2: You know, there are cycles in business, um, whether they're consumer cycles, whether they're investing cycles, uh, there's no question that uh, over a fairly decent amount of time, uh, it's been a pretty entrepreneur friendly uh, fundraising environment. Um, And there were some uh, companies that were using uh, equity capital to just sort of put on the, the marketing spigot um, and uh, doing things that were not sustainable. Um, I think that we've always tried to build our business in, in a sustainable way and an example of that is, uh, from a marketing perspective, we're pretty disciplined um, in that we will only spend uh, the amount of money that will enable us to be have positive contribution margin on somebody's first purchase um, because you know we don't know necessarily how much is it going to cost for them to buy additional to get them to buy additional classes from us or what have you whereas there were some other businesses that would be around for six months and were projecting that their customers over the next five years were going to spend x amount so you can spend y amount uh on marketing to to acquire them so you know when when it is a uh, entrepreneurial friendly uh, investing environment, you know sometimes there tends to be. Uh Reckless is maybe too strong of a word, but you know, not disciplined uh, spending. So I think we'll see some, we've already seen right, some businesses that were high flyers come, come down to earth, uh, but then there are some really good companies out there that are delivering great value and great experiences, um, and they'll continue to grow, and they'll, their valuations will continue to grow.
0: Great, and so just to wrap up, you all have built a very great brand very quickly, what's the one piece of advice you would have to someone else who's trying to build an established brand?
2: Um, from an operational standpoint, uh, Dave and I think a lot about um, these moments where you feel like you have to take these giant leaps of faith. Um, And there's this, I think, belief that entrepreneurs are these crazy risk takers that, you know, are willing to, you know, jump out of an airplane without a parachute. Um, And it's simply untrue. When we're sort of looking down the cliff um, and looking into the abyss, we take a step back um, and we try and break down that uh, decision into a lot smaller ones. Effectively, we de-risk it. So the better analogy than jumping out of an airplane without a parachute would probably be, oh, you know, we um, actually uh, build, double-check the parachute before um, jumping out of the airplane, and we jump out of the airplane while the airplane's on the ground.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, the the other piece of advice that we often give and, and try to practice is just to try to just staying focused Um, and we see a bunch of companies that tend to get distracted Um, and for us we were asked all the time you know have you thought about selling products other than eyewear why aren't you international yet Um, and you know we think there. are uh, but you're
0: not international yet you sell everything in the U.S.
1: Uh, just U.S. and Canada wow Um, and it's been very we think there's a huge global opportunity and and we will tackle that at some point but um, we've really just tried to stay maniacally focused on serving our existing customer base um, before uh, moving on into kind of adjacent opportunities. And you I know, can't think of uh, many businesses that have failed because they were too focused.
0: And I lied, there's one more question that you guys <laughs> get all the time. The IPO market, is it beckoning? Is it calling to you now, especially now that Snapchat went out and wasn't so bad? <laughs>
1: Um, certainly I have a lot of people <laughs> asking us about it. Um, you know, we've raised uh, quite a bit of capital, $215 million. Um, we have a good chunk of that still on our balance sheet. Um, and so, you know, we view an IPO as a financing event, and um, we don't need capital at the moment. And so um, we, uh, we can be kind of patient, and, and um, our investors are very happy with kind of the way that the business is going. We're not getting... Uh, pressure there, so uh, it's probably a, a path that will go down at some point, but not something that we're rushing into.
0: And uh, but what about liquidity for some of your employees or for even for you too? Uh, that's it's also a liquidity a liquidity event. So is that something you think about?
1: It is. Um, so and seven
0: years, it tends to be about the time when people get a little bit antsy.
2: <laughs> so it's seven years since our launch, but since we've taken equity investment, it's been six if that
1: so a little bit less yeah so you got so one more year you're saying <laughs> <laughs> and you know part of the 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 deal when you take uh venture and uh financing is that um you know you're committing to um to have a liquid exit opportunity um and um, you know, we, we will have that uh, opportunity for our investors. We also yeah, think about uh, kind of how we can provide liquidity for our employees. And so um, it is a path that will we'll likely go down. But again, want to make sure that we're doing it for the, the right reasons. Um, and uh, with timing that that makes sense for us.
0: Great. Well, thank you both so much. This was a lot of fun.
1: Thanks
2: for thank having you. us.